Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Today, we're very happy to welcome Aaron Hockley. Aaron is a photographer in Oregon. Your website says Portland, Oregon, but you said you're in Vancouver, Oregon. I'm in Vancouver, Washington, actually, right outside Portland, Oregon. It's all part of the Portland metropolitan area. And so from a from a branding and marketing perspective, I often just say I'm in the Portland area. Okay, so you are a photographer, and you've also recently written a book called The Computer Ate My Photos, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Photography. The first question, Aaron, is are you human? I think so. As far as I know, if if I am a robot or if this is all part of a simulation, I haven't yet proven that. So as far as I know, I'm human and I'm still trying to just get along with the robots and use their powers for good. <laughs> Perfect. But that's what a robot would say. <laughs> the robot would always say that they're human. They right, wouldn't tell right. us the truth. Um, artificial intelligence is in the news. And in fact, this morning, The Guardian had an article um, an op-ed, The Guardian View on Spooky Science, AE Needs Regulating Before It's Too Late. If by 2052 a computer could match the human brain, then we need better ways to build it. That's kind of scary. When you hear about AI, you think of the scary things. You don't think of the fact that every time you take a photo with your iPhone, there's 10,000 things of AI going on a second. We just think of, you know, they've got a photo of, what is it, Alicia Vikander in the movie Ex Machina. That's what we think of when we think of AI. Right. We we think about either, you know, most people either think about, you know, crazy futuristic stuff that hasn't happened yet, or they think maybe about, you know, like you were hinting at kind of some of the like the ethical implications or the privacy implications or things like that. But the reality is it's already here. It's all around us. If you're using your iPhone, if you're using any any modern camera, there's things in there that, you know, that really kind of fall into the realm of AI and they're helping us make better photos. Yeah, we're not going to go into AI in other areas because it just gets too complicated. We do want to talk specifically about cameras. And Jeff and I had a conversation a month or two ago about this. And, and I was thinking, um, as we've as we've been chronicling Apple products and computer products over the decades, we get to these points where you're, you're kind of – you can't go too much further, right? I mean, I remember the history of the iPod, which is just over 20 years old. It was first music, then it added photos, then it added videos. You can't do anything more when you get to that point. With the iPhone, there are very few features you can add, and that's why Apple is doubling down on the cameras and the photos each time. But the one thing that they can do is they can push the envelope with the software that's behind making the photos, behind capturing the photos, and that's something that's almost limitless, at least for the near future. Right. It really is. And it's an area when you look at how good smartphone photos have gotten, whether it's the iPhone or, you know, the Google Pixel or any other, you know, modern smartphone, you know, they're limited by the physics, right? Because the sensors are very small on those devices. The lenses are tiny compared to the ones that we use on our mirrorless cameras or our DSLRs that we carry around. And so because of those limitations in physics, they really have to depend on the software, on that computational photography to make the photos as good as they can be so that, you know, they are really good and they've, and they've succeeded at that thus far. Right. I mean, most people don't go buy a point and shoot camera anymore if they've got a modern smartphone because that smartphone is good enough for them. And so when you look at what Apple and other companies have done, um, they've, you know, they put a lot more focus into that software, um, 
And that's allowed them to get to the point in the market where they are today. Someone I follow on Twitter bought the new Geeks. Someone I follow on Twitter bought the new Google Pixel 6 and he posted a photo the other day. Um, it was a photo of a person on a stairway. To the left was some water running down. To the right was someone else going up the stairs. And the Pixel took out the person in the back on the right. You could not see them. And did a long exposure type of thing on the water coming down. Now, it seems like Google and Apple are doing different things AI-wise, but that Google is made a few leaps ahead of Apple. And, and a lot of this could be that they're using a 50-megapixel sensor on the Google Pixel 6 compared to Apple's mere 12 megapixels. Right. Yeah, it is interesting to see different companies are coming about it from a different way. And if you look at the people that are deep into kind of the iPhone photo ecosystem or the the Android photo ecosystems, you know, we've had a case where kind of the, the default look and the default decisions that each company makes, you know, that you get out of the box, um, you know, can give you a different look. You know, Apple has tended to be a little more conservative, a little more natural looking as far as their renditions of you know, as they use AI to blend exposures together and things like that. Whereas, you know, the, the cameras we've seen on Android, the Pixel, some of the Samsung ones, um, you know, they tend to maybe kind of really boost that vibrance and that contrast and things like that. You know, one of the things I was interested to see this year um, come to the iPhone is the new, um, are they picture modes or photo modes um, where you can essentially change those default settings on your iPhone as it, uh, as it captures the images. So if you want that really vibrant, punchy contrast, you know, make it look like a television on display in the store look, uh, you can do that by default, um, you know, and that you don't have to do that in editing for every photo. And so different companies make different decisions. We've also seen this with the, with the night modes, the, um, you know, the night mode photos, um, which I believe was called night sight came to Android before it came to iPhone. Mm. And it was really like a, a crazy HDR on steroids to the point where it basically took a nighttime photo and made it look like a daytime photo, which was amazing technology. When Apple introduced their night mode, their take on it was we still want it to look like a nighttime photo, but we want it to look like a better nighttime photo. Yeah. <laughs> and and I appreciated that. Um, you know, if I'm taking a picture at night, I generally want it to look like it's night. Um, but either way, that's a great example of where, you know, the companies went in slightly different directions, um, but they're using that AI to give us a, you know, the better finished result that they intended. For me, one of the indicators that this became really serious was when... I mean, we're, we're talking about the software here, but there's also a lot of hardware going on underneath. And before the software, AI software was really used for identifying people in the picture and using that to, to help out with autofocus. And then Apple started adding dedicated coprocessors to the iPhone. This was silicon that was purely devoted to handling images. And... That just seems sort of crazy to me because you've got these processors that's running the phone that's like super powerful and yet they're doing more processors just for the images. And that's when things really kind of ramped up. Right. And I think that's one of the areas where when you look at how has Apple been able to make such great advances in the last few years, um, you know, Computer folks, you know, we've all heard of a CPU, a central processing unit, and we've probably heard of a GPU, a graphics processing unit. But Apple has introduced this concept of a neural processing unit, an NPU chip that they now have, you know, built into the iPhone. It's, 
you know, and it's a chip designed specifically to make all those AI calculations because a traditional CPU, it, it can make those same calculations, but it's not really efficient at it. It takes a lot of power. It uses a lot of battery. And what Apple has done is they've designed hardware specifically for making those sorts of calculations on the iPhone in real time as you're making an image and to do so in an efficient way that isn't going to kill your battery life um, and things like that. And that's where um, you know, those hardware advances in conjunction with the software advances have really allowed them to, you know, make just amazing leaps forward. Now, I'm going to ask a question that's that's really basic, I think is basic, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Now, the, <laughs> the, the neural engines and all of that that they're doing, all of this is still being handled on the device, right? Because there's also that component of people thinking, well, AI technology has to go to the cloud, and I know some of this is is in the the processing stage, where, for example, Adobe uses a lot of cloud processing to do some of its effects. We're going to set that completely aside here, but the neural engine it's it's still doing everything right there, right? Exactly, it's doing that on the phone. You know, I mean, as an example, we we were chatting about how you and I both recently were photographing in a similar location on the same day, and apparently passed each other and didn't realize <laughs> yeah. it you know, the cell phone signal is terrible in there. And actually it's so terrible. I'd switched my iPhone into airplane mode just so it wasn't using any battery trying to find cell service, but I was still capturing images there using that AI technology in my iPhone, even though I had no wireless signal whatsoever. So that is all happening on device. Yeah, that's a good example. I'm kind of wondering if the future is, it's not going to replace photographers, but you were talking about, I forget the term that Apple's using. Already, I forget the term that Apple's using in iOS 15 for these photo presets or whatever everyone calls them. But are we going to get to the stage where most people take photos and they get some sort of really advanced effect because they click one or two different things? Because if you look at smart HDR on the iPhone, it's really efficient. If you have to go to the trouble of doing an HDR um, merge on your computer, it's a lot of work. Are we going to get to the point where photos are always good? At least not the composition, of course, but <laughs> the rendering of the images. I think we're going to get to a point where they get better and better. I mean, if we look at, you know, if we go back 20 years and say, give a random camera to somebody, put it on auto mode and see what they can make with it. And then if you look 10 years ago, and then if you look today you're going to get better photos from the cameras today. And some of that's due to hardware advances, but a lot of that is also due to the processing changes that have happened. We've talked about kind of these photo modes and, you know, the options that people can choose and customize. One of the things that's kind of interesting, and I, I touched it on it in my book kind of as a, what if this could happen? And there's some companies starting to explore it. Um, there's a company called, uh, Imogen AI, um, that you can, give it access to your Lightroom catalog. Essentially, you can upload a Lightroom catalog of a bunch of photos that you've edited. If you've got, you know, thousands of photos that you've edited with your own style, how you like to make images look, they'll use some AI to look at the types of edits that you've made and essentially then be able to say, okay, here now is, you know, we can now automatically edit your images and make them look just like you would based on your past edits. And as your editing style changes over time, that that resulting effect changes over time. And so we have this case where you almost end up with your own uh, kind of like a preset that's not based on 
somebody selling you one or going for a particular look with, you know, oh, this is the cool, moody, grungy look, or <laughs> this is a light, airy look. But it's this is the Jeff Carlson preset. This is the Aaron Hockley preset. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, a preset based on what you've done in the past manually. I can't see Apple doing that with the iPhone because I would posit that the vast majority <laughs> of people don't do any edits to the to their photos. Yeah. Or if they do, they might just tap one of the filter things. Or mm -hmm. even if they're clever enough, they'll import it as a Snapseed where they have some options. But I can imagine them saying that, well, if you do edit in the Photos app, that this is something that they could bring along in the future. Because if you're using the Photos app, you're likely to be putting your photos in the cloud already. Uh, right. Apple already is Apple's already scanning your photos to know what they are. So you can do a live search to, you know, to find different things that are in your photos. Um, what I'm more interested in, though, is can Apple use AI to circumvent the limited resolution of the sensor of a smartphone camera? Can you imagine like they figure out a way to do a pixel shift so that a 12 megapixel sensor can actually take four photos to make a 50 megapixel photo? Mm -hmm. The processor can handle it. Right. If the Google Pixel 6 processor can handle a 50 um, megabyte uh, sensor, then the iPhone certainly can as well. So in some ways, the iPhone processor is overpowered waiting for some new type of feature. It is. And, you know, they're doing some of that now. They're not doing kind of a traditional, you know, pixel shift like we might think of, you know, but there are many cases and many modes on the iPhone where you know, you tap the shutter button and you think you're just taking one frame, yeah. but behind the yeah. scenes, it's actually capturing several images and then kind of doing a, you know, an HDR type merge, um, you know, to, to blend those exposures and to, you know, make sure everything's in alignment and, and things like that. And so they're already doing some of that. And I would expect they're going to continue to do that in the future. And, you know, I would also expect we're going to see at some point, you know, we will get a higher resolution camera sensor in our iPhone as well. You know, they've been on 12 megapixels for a few years now. Since the iPhone 4 or 5? It's been quite a while. Yeah, it's been it's been quite yeah. a while. And, you know, I, I've heard some rumors that maybe next year is the year that that gets bigger. It's, you know, always hard to speculate. But um, it's always you know, next if year. we look at what <laughs> right. If we look at what they've done so far with 12 megapixels, you know, imagine if they had 24, 36, 50, 64, who knows? Well, that's what I'm thinking going forward. Right. Um, so in our previous episode, we talked about my new Leica. It's a 47.3 megapixels, so basically a 48 <laughs> with a bit of cropping. It, it, people talk about full frame, they talk about medium format and the extra megapixels, but with AI, we may not need those megapixels anymore. Now, I'm thinking of the Mac app Pixelmator Pro that has this super resolution, mm. what is it? They call it the super resolution thing to take an image and make it bigger. So you take a thousand pixel image and you make it 5,000. You can't really tell that it was originally a thousand pixel image. So we may be getting to the point where the sensor has to be good enough to get the light, but it doesn't have to have a hundred megapixels to have that kind of detail that the the camera, the smartphone or the, the desktop app will be able to change the resolution so much, giving us an awful lot more ability to edit. It would not surprise me if Apple could do that already, but I think their focus and Aaron, to what you said earlier about companies making choices with how they're they're using this technology, I think Apple's choice has been more toward the HDR blending uh, using the AI to identify things in the image 
So if you have an image that is a sunset or a park or has trees, it's going to process those areas differently because it recognizes what those are. And my suspicion is they're putting their focus on those kinds of edits and those kinds of blending and not necessarily the scaling up or all these other things that they could do. And maybe that's just the base. They want to make it look good and then scale up rather than make it really big and then you realize it's kind of chunky. My guess is that since they have all these photos that people are putting in iCloud, they are examining. They know what kinds of photos people are taking. They know what people are taking photos of, and that's where they're focusing on. Yeah, Yeah, and I think so. And I think when we look at that ability to scale up, whether it's, you know, with the technologies that we've seen like from Pixelmator or uh, Topaz Labs has Gigapixel AI, which does a similar type of thing. Um, you know, the reality is as that AI is able to look at different types of images, you know, we'll probably find that say for, I don't know, 80, 85, 90% of subjects, those photos can be enlarged really well. And yeah, you wouldn't know that it's been a four X enlargement mm-hmm. because, Hey, so it's enlarging this foliage in this landscape photo and it can make trees look like trees, even <laughs> though they've been enlarged or, you know, it's enlarging this portrait and it's really good at, you know, doing that in a natural way with the face. So it still looks good. Um, you know, I think in a lot of cases it will be like so many other things in photography where for 80 or 90% of the scenarios, a certain technology can get it good enough. And then there will always be that maybe limited example where, yeah, you really do need a a 50 megapixel camera because that particular scene is something that the AI can't quite figure out at this point in time. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking the landscape photos that Jeff took, um, Jeff's going to put a link in the show notes to some of his photos. He went on a trip um, with his friend Mason Marsh going up into the mountains and out into the wilderness. And you can't really scale up a 12 megapixel photo to get that. Um, I know, Jeff, you were using a 24 megapixel Fuji, but there's limits as to what you can do when you've got so much detail in the distance like that. But uh, it's kind of like, have we reached a point where it just doesn't even matter that uh, photographs are already simulacra of reality. And we've gotten to the point where the smartphone is good enough at imitating reality in a way that we find pleasing, right? Um, Because it's adjusting the color and the contrast and the light. And it's adjusting the light to something like what we see, which isn't the way the camera sensor sees. Have we gotten to the point where there's not a lot of progress to make, though? I think we've gotten to a point where for a lot of people, for a lot of purposes, we probably have in that you know, the photos that they're going to share digitally online through social media, or they're going to email to some relatives or, um, you know, various purposes like that. I, you know, at some point you reach that point where, you know, good enough is good enough. And I think for a lot of purposes, we are now that's not to say that, you know, Nike, who's looking to get a high resolution image to, you know, put on a giant wall at a Super Bowl advertisement or something, you know, isn't still going to need that premium level product that only a professional with some really top end gear is going to be able to deliver. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but if we look at the mainstream market, if we look at what most casual photographers and even, you know, kind of serious prosumers are doing, um, you know, it's definitely we've hit a plateau where, you know, is there really that big of a difference between, you know, a 24 megapixel camera and a 30 megapixel camera or a 40 megapixel camera? Eh, yes, there is in a technical sense. But when you look at the end results, 
it's sometimes hard to tell that difference. Yeah. Now, we've been focused a lot on the iPhone and what, what Apple is doing and Google and all that. I want to shift a little bit toward the other camera manufacturers because there does mm-hmm. seem to be this gap of why are these features <laughs> not on Sony or Fuji or Canon or Nikon or, you know, they're they're starting to. And actually, th- there's still a lot of AI stuff going on with those cameras. It's just comparatively, you'd hardly know it. Right. And, you know, when we look at the types of AI that we've seen from the kind of traditional camera manufacturers making DSLRs or mirrorless cameras, they've been focused more on AI in the camera to help you or help help you and help the camera, you know, better capture what your intent is in the camera. So things like being able to do face detection in your viewfinder or to be able to do eye detection and lock autofocus Mm -hmm. onto the eyes of a person or a pet as it moves throughout the image. You know, that that's AI technology there. Um, You know, we don't often hear it, you know, advertised as such. They don't usually use the word artificial intelligence or computational photography or machine learning quite as much as Apple does in their keynotes. Um, You know, but they do have some of that technology. I think I think there's a couple of reasons probably why they seem to be, uh, I don't want to say lagging behind, but maybe not innovating as quickly as, you know, say Apple or Google or Samsung. Um, You know, I think one is that they haven't had to, (laughs) you know, I mean, to a certain extent, um, you know, with the cameras we've seen on our smartphones, in order for them to get good enough to kind of get considered to be, you know, real cameras and used for making good pictures, you know, they had to evolve past the, you know, the really crappy, you know, we probably remember the first camera phones we had, you know, flip phones with that took 640 by 480 images and they were grainy as hell. And so you know, they've had to innovate to become useful and to be taken seriously. Whereas, you know, if you're a Canon or a Nikon or a Sony, you know, your camera has all those physics advantages already going for it, right? You can have a big sensor, you can have, you know, big, heavy glass, and it hasn't needed to do that. I think the other thing is that if we look at the traditional camera manufacturers, there's always been software and firmware in those cameras, but that's not been a big focus for them, right? I mean, how often have you gotten a camera and been like, wow, the menu and the user interface is (laughs) is super easy to use on this. This is awesome. (laughs) Probably that's been a rare occurrence. You know, it's like the software has almost been an afterthought for those, uh, those companies. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, we're starting to see more, we're starting to see more of those technologies come into play. And I think we will continue to see that as they evolve their things, you know, and they're also starting to use it in other areas as well. Um, one example I mentioned in the book is that Canon introduced a flash a couple of years ago, just a speed light flash you can put on top of your camera or set on a light stand or whatever. But this one was specifically designed that if you're going to use it to bounce the light off of a ceiling or a wall or something like that, it's got some AI in the flash head that will look at that bounce and basically automatically set the flash to kind of the optimal pivot angle and light strength right. uh, to give you the best photos that it can based on its its auto exposure. And so I think, you know, as we continue to see technology develop, we'll see the camera companies, we'll see lighting companies, we'll see these other companies that all are part of that ecosystem continue to do things to make it as easy as possible for us to capture the image that, you know, we have in our heads. The one thing that I can see 
um, coming into these larger, what I'll call a real camera as opposed to a, a smartphone, <laughs> is the ability, and we're seeing this with the iPhone with portrait mode and depth mapping and all that, the ability to get a, an, a blurred depth of field without having a very expensive, very fast lens. So maybe even at f4 or f5.6, you still want some blur, you want some background blur. Mm-hmm. I don't use the other B word. Um, right. <laughs> and you'll be able to do this in post because there'll be some kind of depth mapping to allow you to do this. Yeah, that's been something that's been interesting. We, you know, we kind of first saw that in the like the Lytro uh, view oh, camera yeah. that you know gave us that you know which was an interesting proof of concept. They were never able to really make it work commercially, uh, but we've now seen that happen with the smartphones with the you know the, the portrait mode and that that depth you know mapping. And so that is a good example where in a lot of circumstances that that fake, you know, blur that you get or that computer generated blur that you get, um, you know, does look really good. Now, not every circumstance. I've certainly taken my share of portrait mode photos where it's like, ooh, what the heck happened right there at the edge of that thing, whether it's, you know, somebody's head or, you know, a beer glass I'm photographing or something like that. But cat whiskers, cat whiskers, I'm sure fade away. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but, you know, but that's where it is today. And if we look at how that was to where it was two or three years ago, it's gotten a lot better. And if we look at where are we going to be three years from now, it's 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 going to be better yet. And so that's the other thing that I find interesting with a lot of these new technologies is when we first see them come onto the market, they're they're generally, you know, they're pretty good, but they're not perfect. You know, people always find the limitations in them. We've we've seen that with the cinematic yeah. mode in, you know, with Apple's new cameras is that, you know, the pros are going to go push that to the limits and find the edges. But great, this is version 1.0. So what's going to happen to five, 10 years down the road as they continue to refine that? It's going to keep getting better. The thing is, though, the progress is going to be slower and more incremental and not spectacular. Uh, is going to be very hard. And it could be that Apple's been waiting for the right time of having nothing new to offer to come out with a bigger um, <laughs> sensor for the iPhone, right? Which will allow them to do much more because the processor's fast enough and they'll be able to leverage that going forward. But I, I don't think I don't think the smartphone of today is going to look that different than the smartphone of five years from now in terms of the results of the camera Whereas five years ago, from five years ago to today, right, we're, we're back at the iPhone 7 five years ago, 8, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There was a huge difference. There is. I think it will be interesting to see what also has to evolve along with, you know, maybe having a better sensor, having a faster processor. Because, you know, as we all know from our, our photo ventures, you know, uh, when you get bigger resolution, you know, you end up with bigger file sizes and things like that, right? Somewhere around, I've, we're in the process of rebuilding my office here, and somewhere I found I found a 16 megabyte <laughs> compact flash card, a, a Kodak branded 16 megabyte compact flash card. You know, whereas you know now that won't even hold a single photo coming off of you know my my mirrorless camera. Yeah. Um, you know, and so as we look at things like if my iPhone can take a 50 megapixel photo or a hundred megapixel photo and it does all this processing on it, we're going to see innovation, not just in the, the photo capture, but we're going to have to see innovation around, okay, well, how do I move those photos off my device? Whether that's to the cloud, whether that's to my computer, uh, you know, 
we saw Apple switch their default photo file format a few years ago from, you know, JPEG to the uh, HEIC, the high high efficiency format, which, you know, again, it's a higher, it's still got compression, but it's a smaller file size. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're going to have to see these other innovations, you know, to help people deal with bandwidth and storage space and things like that. And so, um, you know, when you look at kind of the overall photo ecosystem in, say, the Apple world, uh, it won't just be camera improvements that are going to give us a better overall experience as a photographer. We are seeing some of that right now because with the iPhone 13 Pro, you can now shoot video in a, a compressed ProRes format. And it's great, but because you only have a lightning port or wireless, uh, <laughs> getting those those files off of the iPhone is a big deal because they can be multi Multi, multi gigabytes. Not only that, you can't even shoot ProRes in 4K unless you have an iPhone with 250 gigabytes of storage or more. Yeah. Right. So they're already making sure you don't fill up your iPhone by not allowing you to do it. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, as we look at all that, you know, and that I think that's a great example of, you know, that ProRes, that's something that realistically you know, the average consumer who's not into video is not going to care about. I mean, right. I'm not even, I'm a serious photographer, but I don't really do that much with video. I don't really care about it. I'm not going to shoot ProRes. I don't have that need. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but for that part of the market that wants to use them for those very serious tasks and, and that part of the market does exist. It's not a huge part of the market, but it is a part of the market. Um, you know, they're going to end up with these, these different needs and these different limitations that they're going to run into, you know, like the, the transfer and the file size issues you mentioned. Yeah. I think one thing that Apple's looking forward to is selling people more iCloud storage for those files. I'm sure that will be part of it is, you know, how do you sell that storage and then just increasing the the robustness of that platform to make it easier that, you know, great, how do I get it from my iPhone up to iCloud? And then how do I get that onto however many computers I need it onto or wherever I'm going to edit it? It's all, it's an ecosystem you know, challenge, not well, just Well, it's true issue. that if, if I look at an iPhone photo, it's what, between three and four megabytes. If I look at my Fuji uh, 24 megapixel, it's what, 16, 18 for a JPEG and 50 about for a, a RAW file. If I look at my Leica, it's 85 megabytes for a RAW file. So if I was using a 50 megapixel uh, sensor on the iPhone with RAW, I'd quickly fill up my iPhone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, the file sizes are something that we're going to all all be dealing with. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening in the future as far as, you know, file formats. You know, I mean, obviously storage gets seems to get cheaper every year, (laughs) but, you know, that's probably not the only solution that can get thrown at this problem. But Kirk, don't worry. Apple will sell you a higher capacity phone. So don't worry about that. (laughs) You can always throw more money at it. But you can't do it after you've bought the phone. You can't add the storage after you've bought the phone when you realize you're shooting ProRes video and you need the storage or you want the storage. You buy a second and phone and tape it to the first one. It's it's totally easy. <laughs> no. I don't know why this is hard for you. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder why – so I'm holding up the uh, MagSafe battery pack that I can slip on the back of my iPhone 13. I'm wondering why Apple doesn't come up with something like this for storage. It's an interesting concept. I yeah. mean, you know – I could see a third party introducing, I mean, and maybe somebody has, I haven't actually looked at, you know, a MagSafe storage. Well, I guess 
Can you use external storage on an iPhone? You can on you an can, iPhone. You can, yeah. 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 It's like, I mean, if nothing else, you could do a really kludgy thing where your storage hooks onto your iPhone and then you've got this goofy little U-shaped cable mm-hmm. yeah. between the two. I, but I yeah. think something um, out there exists. I remember seeing maybe maybe a Kickstarter or something, but it, it's got to be out there somewhere. <laughs> Don't know if it's good, but yeah. Right. All right. So <laughs> I have to ask the question because uh, I feel ethically obligated. So basically all this means that photographers are no longer going to have any work because all of our gear is going to do everything for us and there's going to be no artistry and photography is dead. That's that's what we've come to, right? Right, right. You know, are we going to get automated out of a yes. job, right? That's the concern. That's the concern that anybody has, regardless of their career. When you start talking about automation, is, oh, shoot, am I going to get automated out of a job? And, you know, I think realistically, it depends on what you're talking about as your job and what you're talking about getting automated out of. I, I don't think, you know, AI robots in our lifetime are going to replace photographers entirely, right? You know, whether we're talking about landscape photographers, whether we're talking about, you know, people taking family photos, whether we're talking about professionals making, you know, portraits or commercial work or whatever yeah. that is, you know, professional photographers, you know, for the most part, aren't going to get automated out of a job. I think what we are going to see and we are already seeing is that some of the tasks and things that you would do as a photographer, you may no longer need to do because they're getting automated. You know, great example that I like to point to is, you know, Jeff, I know you've done a lot of event photography. It's something that I've done a lot of as well, right? You can come home from an event, whether it's a, you know, a two hour, you know, dinner event or whether it's an all day long, a wedding or a a corporate trade show or something. And you're going to have hundreds or thousands of images to go through. And, you know, that takes a bunch of time. There is AI software now on the market that you can point to a set of photos and it can go through and do some culling work for you. It can pick out the ones that are obviously overexposed or underexposed or blurry or where you've got several images that look similar. It can identify which one seems like it's the sharpest or most in focus, things like that. And so... You know, a photographer who's used to coming back from a wedding and then spending 90 minutes or two hours culling through those images to make their selections may find that in the the not too distant future, they have a software program and they say, great, uh, call this set of, you know, 4000 photos and it spits out. Great. Here's the best hundred. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so is it that can automate you out of a job? Well, not necessarily save you time it's going to save you time you you can be mixing martinis while the software is doing its work exactly you know there's there's probably some areas of photography that are going to be more impacted than others uh you know i'll mention stock photography right which has obviously undergone a lot of business transformation in the last 20 years with the shift from you know mostly rights managed to now micro stock being king and I, I get into this at the tail end of the book, but there's the potential for, you know, AI generated photography, right? We're talking about computers being able to identify faces and identify objects and identify situations. The computers can also start to generate those types of things. And so if I'm a marketing person and I need a photo of a blonde girl walking on the beach holding a red balloon at sunset, I can go try and find that on a stock photography site 
Or I might be able to in the future just tell my computer, hey, generate me an image of a teenage girl with blonde hair walking on the beach at sunset carrying a red balloon. And it might be able to do yeah. that. And so uh, if the type of work that a photographer makes and markets is is really generic kind of stuff, that that part of the market may just go away. But ultimately, and especially for pros, you know, your your client isn't just looking to hire you to press the shutter button and capture a technically correct image, right? They're hiring you for the overall experience. They're hiring you for, you know, your guidance on where are we going to make this photo? How are you going to pose me? What's going to make it, you know, look best? How can you, you know, what other products or how you should suggest I share this with my family? And so all of that kind of stuff isn't going to get replaced by AI anytime in the foreseeable future. So... What I can imagine is shooting a wedding with a fleet of drones that the drones are programmed to know what to look for. And they're going to just be buzzing around all over the place. Picture, 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 picture. The photographer still needs to program them, change the batteries, call the Mm -hmm. photos at the end and everything. But I can see that sort of thing being much more popular in part because they don't get in the way. Right. That, you know, that can be something and that, you know, that gets into, you know, just the whole great area of what is going to be our our social expectations and the social norms around this changing world as well. Right. Because, you know, as it is now, there are, you know, there are wedding venues where they put very strict restrictions on a photographer as to where they can stand, where can they be at different times of the ceremony? You know, can they move around or not? And all things like that. I'm just imagining a scenario where you have this this fleet of drones inside this big Catholic cathedral <laughs> and just, you know, something tells me that wouldn't fly, at least in, you know, 2021. Uh, no pun intended. Mm, but, I don't see um, why not. It would be I, the I loudest. Can, I can imagine it would be. No, <laughs> they're not that loud anymore, the small ones. It would be. I mean, we're, we're still a few years away, but imagine that you right. can have one drone that's underneath the bride and the groom as the groom is putting the ring on the finger and another one that's over the shoulder and you can get all sorts of angles and, you know, without blocking the sight lines of the people. Right, right. It, it's not, you know, it, the first thought is like, that's insane. But then you start looking, it's like, you know, that's not really that crazy, right? I mean, sports photographers and event photographers will use remote cameras as it is, right? right? Well, they're already um, and, using drones in sports and in, in football games. I was talking yeah. to someone the other day, they'll run a drone over the field. And, and if mm-hmm. you see, it's really easy to see how much drones have changed TV and cinema lately. Yeah. Because before when you needed a helicopter to get a, a shot, now you just, you just send out a drone and it looks almost exactly the the same. Right. And so we've seen that happen in certain areas of photography, but it, you bring up a great point. I mean, why couldn't that expand to other areas, right? I mean, if I'm if I'm out making a family portrait, um, why not also have a drone that's, you know, 20 feet up in the air just giving me a new angle on that or things like that. And and that's all possible now with, you know, the technology we have. But as we look at where is it going to go, I mean, I think we'll see it start to become more common, but we'll also have that become more common in a way where the photographer won't have to spend as much time doing the setup, doing the programming, doing the configuration, Mm -hmm. you know, because instead of having to tell it, I want you to do this and that and there and, you know, bringing an assistant to operate it and all this, um, you know, they might be able to just essentially say, hey, we're in family portrait mode. That's the subject. Do your thing. Yeah. Aaron Hockley, your book is The Computer Ate My Photos, Artificial Intelligence in the Future of Photography. Where can we find your book, Aaron? 
Easiest way to get it is just go to Amazon.com, do a search. You can grab it as a paperback or a Kindle, and you can head over to techphotoguy.com and keep up with all of my random uh, photography musings about uh, the intersection of photography and technology. And we'll have links in the show notes. Absolutely. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been great being here. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got this week? My snapshot this week is going to sound a little strange, perhaps, but my snapshot is an Apple TV 4K. What? That's not for photos. It's not for photos, but, well, it can be. You can you can put photos on the TV. So the reason I bring this up, and it's not even a really new product, although I believe they, did they refresh the hardware this last year? I don't know. I had... A, they refreshed the remote, which is terrible. They refreshed the remote, which is awesome because the new remote right, which is, was terrible, is much better I have yeah, the old remote exactly so i had the old version basically the the apple tv hd version and it was always perfectly fine even when i bought i had to replace our tv because our old one broke and so we got a 4k version because that's pretty much all you can get right now it's got hdr but even though it was upscaling, everything looked just fine. And I just didn't have a real compelling need to finally break down and get the Apple TV 4K. Well, this year, when they they, they re-released the new version that has the improved remote, that was my impetus. And so I went ahead and got it. And it's it's fine. It's great. It's It looks a little bit better. The thing that I love about it is that the Apple TV is its own little thing. The The television that I own has a Roku-based operating system. And there's an Apple TV app that you can turn on or connect to. And like it has all sorts of smart things. The problem is modern TVs are inexpensive because they're trafficking all sorts of information. They're sending your viewing habits, what, what you're doing when you're watching. And I don't want any of that. So I've I've turned off the internet connection to my television and I have the Apple TV and the Apple TV honestly we use that for all of our TV watching. And I know it's not the best interface for doing this and we don't have cable, we don't have like traditional broadcast television. We cut the cord a while ago and yet it's perfectly fine. We watch Disney Plus and Netflix and I I don't watch sports, so that's kind of a big deal for some people. But it's it's something that that has worked and I don't really have to stress about it, especially with the new remote. And it's not cheap. The lowest priced one that has 32 gigs of storage is $179. I know you can get little plug-in things that are far cheaper. Uh, you can also get a 64 gig for $199, but honestly, I don't really play games on it. it I don't need a lot of extra storage, but it works, and it's not something that I have to stress about. So that's my that's my pick. Uh, Apple TV 4K from uh, a little fruit company in California. Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, I mentioned earlier the MagSafe battery pack. 
Um, I bought the iPhone 13 Pro, so that's a smaller one. And I really like this MagSafe ecosystem, the way you've got the little charging disc that snaps on magnetically in the right place. Now, I don't know if you've been using induction charging on your phones for a few years. Yeah. I have. And I had an induction charger, a cheap anchor charger on the bedside table. And if I didn't put the phone on in exactly the right place, I'd wake up in the morning, it wouldn't be charged. So here, the magnet puts it, it snaps it in almost. Um, I don't really need the battery pack a lot, but the idea of having a battery pack in case we're going out someplace and I want to have extra power is really practical. It snaps on to the back. Now, you either need to use your iPhone caseless or with a specific MagSafe case mm. because the MagSafe case has the magnets in it to line everything up. Uh, on the iPhone 13 Pro, it provides, according to Apple, 60% additional charge. So the additional charge is based on the number of milliamp hours of the battery. So it can do 60% of a full charge of the iPhone 13, 40% of the iPhone 13 Max, but 70% of an iPhone 13 mini. It's not as cheap as third-party versions. It has less power than third-party versions, but it is well integrated into the Apple ecosystem. You can look at the battery widget and see the power left in the MagSafe battery pack as well as on the phone, the same way you can check your AirPods, your watch, and all that. Um, it's it's the sleek version that you pay twice as much for as always with Apple. But it's a nice little thing to have handy if we're ever going out for a trip and I don't want to have to carry a battery pack that plugs in. I can just drop this in a pocket. It's, it's no thicker than the iPhone itself. Um, it's about two-thirds the size of the iPhone uh, 13 Pro, obviously smaller on the 13 Pro Max. The way you have to think of it is it is the size to fit perfectly on the back of the iPhone mini. So it's going to be smaller on each bigger model. Mm -hmm. In other words, it can't be too big for the smallest iPhone. 99 bucks, um, MagSafe battery pack. Nice. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.